This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Insiders Back to You podcast. I'm David Spears, joining you from the ABC's Ultimo studio on Gadigal land today. And I'm joined by AM presenter Sabra Lane, who's joining us from Nippaluna, Hobart, and the ABC's National Affairs Editor James Glenday, joining us from Parliament House on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to you both. G'day, Spearsy. Hey. Now, as you both know, the week after the budget is usually when Prime Ministers and Treasurers crisscross the country, selling the goodies, ramming home their lines about what responsible economic managers they are and how bright the future looks. This week's been a little bit different. Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers, well, they've, they've been out crisscrossing the country a few visits to the odd childcare centre. But look, most of the news has, has been rather grim, let's face it. We had the Reserve Bank lifting interest rates for the seventh consecutive month. Uh, the Reserve Bank also taking the opportunity to revise up the inflation forecast uh, you know, while they were at it. So we're now looking at higher inflation for longer. Uh, and then we had government fighting a couple of battles, the main one with the, um, the, the big gas companies as the government grapples of what to do about energy prices and well, at least one minister letting rip on what he really thinks of the gas companies. Uh, and they also had a bit of a battle with some business groups over their IR reforms as well, their workplace reforms. Um, Sabra, all the while, people are struggling to pay their bills and getting worried about cost of living. What? What? Just before we get to everyone's questions, what have you made of, of this post-budget week? Well, it's been uh, absolutely fascinating uh, for someone who's a long-term observer of things in um, Parliament House and outside Parliament House. Um, for the first time, I think, Spearsy, the government is uh, appears to be, the perception is that it's really on the back foot here. Um, and, you know, these, circum- these are circumstances beyond its control, largely, things that have been in train for quite some time. Uh, but it was also interesting, as you alluded to, we also had the Reserve Bank Governor out midweek talking again, um, sort of taking the country with him, so to speak, to try and explain what the, th- the thinking behind the bank's recent decisions to lift interest rates mm. uh, in such a fast fashion and, you know, to explain how it's trying to tackle inflation, saying that if they don't intervene and keep trying to quell um, people buying stuff, <laughs> that inflation's going to continue to skyrocket and people are going to continue to be hurt by it because basic things in the sh- supermarket and their power bills are going up and up. Yeah. And they've got to keep explaining this, right? Because in, well, we'll get to this. The questions keep on coming. Why, why do they have to keep lifting rates to tackle this inflation problem? But James, just to pick up on something Sabra said, a lot of these issues driving inflation are beyond the government's control. We had a couple of polls out this week. Look, for what it's worth, you know, opinion polls, this point in the cycle, all of that. Um, it, look, it, it is interesting. What what do they tell us about whether people are blaming the government at all for the, the pain we're all facing? I don't know because I, I must admit I'm not a big poll fan at the best of times mm. and I'm definitely not a, a fan, you know, so close uh, after an election. I think the, you know, the thing that's interesting about this week is that you normally have a budget and you normally have the sales job, but this had kind of worked in reverse, right? The, the sales job was the election campaign. This was the accounting for the election promises. And in it, you know, it was a page 57 of the uh, first lot of budget papers. There was this figure of uh, 20% electricity rises this year, uh, 30% uh, the next financial year. So 56% uh, combined, unless 
the government does something. So it's kind of like put there. Uh, to uh, the, the the problem was posed by the government. They could have just left that out, I suppose, couldn't they? Mm. But they've they've posed it. They've said this is happening. Now we're going to mull over it for a week or so and try and work out some sort of solution. But I don't think there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for this because, yeah, it's driven by international factors. It's driven by a decade of underinvestment in the grid and energy policy. And so we're kind of stuck for it for a little while. But I do think the government has to do something. And I think Jim Jarmus has said he'll do this before Christmas because there are so many small manufacturers who are really squealing at the moment, worried that they will go broke if these price rises uh, actually do come into reality over the next year and a half. It's very, very real. Let's get to the, the question because the first one's right on this point. Uh, it's from David and David asks, we're told that assistance for cost of living increases would contribute to inflation. David says, if my electricity cost increases by 100 bucks and I receive $100 of government assistance, I have no extra to spend on groceries, uh, for example. How then is the assistance uh, inflationary? This is, a, this is a great question because this is absolutely, David's right, um, what the government's arguing as to why it can't send out checks or you know, give people um, direct rebates on their energy bills because it would be inflationary. It'd be putting money into the economy. But as David points out, um, if your electricity bill, for example, goes up by $100, you receive $100 from the government to help with that. Uh, Sabra, does David have a point? Is it is it really going to be inflationary? Uh, well, yes, it is um, because people will, I mean, you know, it's we could have a long uh, debate, uh, a pointy-head economic debate about this, but if you don't, if you give people assistance, there's going to be no change in their behaviour. Um, that's one of the things is that it's also to do with price signals. Horrible uh, economics here, basically. They have to set, there are price signals. Companies say that they're needing to recoup this cost because it's costing them more money and it's because of a, you know, as you've alluded to, too, mm. a decade of policy and action over energy. They're in a really tricky, tight spot. And, you know, the war in Ukraine is going to keep going on. This isn't going to go away and a one-off you know, assistance with the electricity bills ain't going to fix it either, quite frankly. Mm. The, the issue here too, James, is whether something like electricity, a power bill, is a, you know, economic speak, a discretionary item. Um, look, mm. whether you can actually buy less of it when the price is high, I guess to some degree, but it's not really that easy for a lot of households to dial down their mm. uh, electricity or gas usage. Um, so that they are in a bind. What, what do you make of David's point here, though, about whether assistance would be inflationary if it's directly covering that higher power bill? Depends what David's earning. <laughs> so basically the problem is there's too much cash in the economy mm. and there's too much cash because people saved a lot over the pandemic and because we made money almost free. Not quite, but we made it cheaper than uh, how fast the economy was growing. That has now led to too much demand. Too much, too many people are trying to buy too many things effectively. And so the bad news, David, is that uh, basically the Reserve Bank is trying to take money out of the economy effectively so that it cools demand. And so, yes, you, you are worse off. I think if David, you are in the some among the poorest Australians, I think there is an argument that uh, some of your cost of living should be subsidised because 
you're being hit hardest at the moment. However, the broader idea is that if you were to subsidise really low-income earners or people who are unemployed at the moment, then you'd have to be taking money elsewhere from the system, maybe in parenting payments for for, for middle-income earners, things like that. So it's kind of a juggling act, but um, the, the RBA is trying to cool the economy and it's trying to do that by making things more expensive, particularly debt. Yeah, question from Carol, and again, it's about how to tackle inflation. Carol asks, why not increase the GST instead of lifting interest rates? That way, everyone contributes tax to help the country, not just mortgage holders, and the government could use this money to give rebates to uh, welfare recipients to assist them. Uh, Carol says raising interest rates means the banks are getting richer, only people with mortgages are hit hard, and it contributes to rents rising, which further feed into inflation. Um, Well, Carol, I guess the, the the simple answer to that is yes, increasing the GST or any tax would take money out of the economy, so it would have some impact on uh, on inflation, but it would also be a tax hike, wouldn't it? And the government would wear the blame for that rather than the independent Reserve Bank. They do like telling us that it's the independent Reserve Bank making these decisions, definitely not the government. Um, Sabra, look, any lift in the GST, it would hit those on lowest incomes disproportionately, wouldn't it? It, it would, and that's what would happen. The other thing is uh, the way the GST set up, is set up right now any uh, revenue that is taken from that is actually given to the states. Mm, it's not point. given to welfare recipients. So, you know, the way things stand at the moment, that's not how it would work. Labor's never been a fan of the GST, and I do not think that this government now or any time in the future uh, will be arguing for that. It makes things more expensive too. <laughs> it would yeah. make household items more expensive as well. And uh, I'd say to Carol, I'm a fan of raising the GST as part of broader tax reform to fund schools, hospitals, all the things that are crying out for extra cash. But yeah, I agree with Sabra. It is not going to happen. Jim asks, can you explain why the Reserve Bank seems to be focused on reducing inflation at any cost? Uh, and the second part of his question, why is the Reserve Bank continuing to attack inflation by raising interest rates when it's clearly not working? Well, is it working or isn't it working? I mean, infl- we're seeing this around the world, right? Australia's not the only one in this in, in this situation. Um, inflation is still rising despite, what is it now, seven interest rate rises uh, here in Australia. There have been even steeper rises um, elsewhere. Uh, but is it working? Well, it's it's one of those, James, um, ones that's difficult to, um, to prove the counterfactual. I think it is working. It's taking money out of the economy already. I just think that the data lags. And the question is, Mm. how many more rate rises do we need before we tip over that point where we see inflation go down? To Jim's question, why is the Reserve Bank trying to reduce inflation at any cost? Because it eats away at real wealth. There's a debate about whether the target should be 2 to 3%, which is where the RBA wants to get it back. But basically, your purchasing power at the moment is going backwards because wages are increasing at a slower rate than inflation. So you're getting your living standards are going backwards, and that's why they want to bring it down into this target range. And Phil Lowe keeps making the point, if you don't tackle it in this way, sure, it's painful, but if you don't, it's going to be a lot more painful if inflation isn't brought under control, isn't brought back down to that you know, target zone, as it's called, 2 to 3%. You're right, you can debate whether that needs to move at all, but around that 2 to 3%, Sabra, if they don't get it back down there, this is going to have longer and more damaging impacts on the economy. Yes, that's right. And Phil Lowe pointed to that when he gave a speech midweek in Hobart about that, saying that they really did have to tackle this because otherwise it will hurt. Um, He also Mm. gave some interesting um, um, 
points, made interesting points there, saying that the the path the bank was on was a narrow one, i.e., you know, it's, there are still a lot of risks yeah. inherent here. Uh, and he said basically if they um, weren't lifting interest rates, you know, there was a real risk of a severe recession. No one wants that. Yeah, and if you lift them too hard and too fast, there's a risk yeah. of recession too, yeah. right, if you, if you, you know, have a hard landing. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody wants to avoid that. The recession from 1991, um, many argue it took Australia, you know, nearly a generation to recover from that. Yeah, do you think, do both of you think, I mean, it strikes me with this weekly podcast, we're getting these questions every week at the moment as rates rise. Why are interest rates going? Why is this the answer to tackling inflation? This question just keeps coming up. Is there a need, do you think, for the Reserve Bank, um, maybe the government, I don't know, to, to get a better public education campaign out there to explain to people why this has to happen? There seems to be this assumed knowledge that everyone gets it. Rates are what's needed to, to bring down inflation. Do they need, I mean, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, is certainly getting out and about. He had um, a, mm. a one-on-one last night, basically, with um, Q&A host Stan Grant. But remember, uh, Paul Keating, love him or loathe him, had a great turn of phrase when it came to educating the public about the economy. I don't know, maybe they need someone of that kind of calibre explaining mm. stuff on a daily basis. We just haven't seen a situation like this for so long. I think that's the that's the biggest yeah. thing, right? And the economy's totally changed because we now don't make as much stuff in this country. And so we are importing um, a fair bit of our inflation because stuff that is made, mm. if it's more expensive in the United States, then it's more expensive here. It's more expensive in China. It's more expensive here. And so compared to last time we had this problem, um, we, we're a little bit more exposed to global conditions, which I think sort of just my personal view, might mean that, uh, that I think that's why the Reserve Bank's going a little bit slower than some of its other counterparts, um, in part because of the size of uh, our mortgages here, but also because it's looking at the very uncertain global world and doesn't want to kind of go too hard so that the economy suddenly crashes. Um, but it's an interesting question from Jim, though. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. I was just going to say, and also, you know, look at what's happening uh, in the UK today. No doubt James is a former correspondent there, you've been also interested in what's happened there. The Bank of England has also upped interest rates quite substantially there and also pointed out that it believes the country's in recession already and it will take two years mm. for it to get out. Yeah. And that's going to cause a lot of hardship. And we're already seeing pictures of people there in desperate situations. Yeah. And if, if, if interest rates go up too quickly, because everyone thinks of mortgage holders, right? But like this actually affects businesses too, because a lot of them have loans and therefore they're less likely to employ staff. All these other things take a little bit of time to filter through to the economy. And we're going to see unemployment rise, which is a tragedy, because even though it's very, it's still going to be low, according to the budget, I think around four and a half percent, that's, you know, a hundred thousand odd people, slightly more, um, who, who lose a job or lose hours and all the rest of it. So, you know, that's why you've got the government out there saying, look, tough times are coming, but we've got to deal with this now. Got a question from Alan who asks, I've heard many times from different journalists and even Jim Chalmers himself that coalition governments have been the highest taxing governments of all time or recent history. Alan says he's wondering why when coalition politicians talk about taxes always being lower under the coalition than under Labor, why journalists never challenge them on this at every turn? 
Uh, Alan says, uh, thanks for the show and the podcast. I listen to them religiously. Thank you, Alan. So I ju- I've just pulled up the budget papers, the most recent ones, and they do at the back of the book provide a, a very handy historic guide uh, that lays all of this out. Um, and look, the point is absolutely correct. There's a table that shows you tax receipts as a percentage of GDP dating back to 1970. The highest uh, years have been, well, there's 2000, 2001 was 24.1% of GDP, gets a bit higher in 2004, 5 uh, and 2005, 6, where it reaches 24.2% of GDP. I think that's the highest on the table that I can see there. They're, of course, under the Howard government years. And then more recently, the highest figure was last financial year, 2021-22, at 23.4% of GDP. And again, that was under the Morrison government. So look, it's true that the highest taxing as a percentage of GDP have been under coalition government. So Labor's right when it points that out. James, why don't journalists point this out every time a coalition MP says that? Oh, Alan, I wish we could burn this with fire. I just think these generalisations are stupid um, because we don't know what's going to happen in six months, let alone one year, two years, three years, four years. The forecasts in the budget are interesting, but really we know they're going to change. I mean, what was the was a $100 billion improvement from March to now? So I, I, these generalisations, I just don't think, hold a lot of water because we have no idea what's going to happen in the coming years. But I do kind of take Alan's mm. point. Sabra, as you know, someone who does a lot of interviews, um, just perhaps you could explain why you know some things don't get challenged every time when you've only got a short amount of time for the interview, and perhaps you don't want to get bogged down <laughs> re-prosecuting. That's right. And I, I don't know. Just explain how you approach that. Yeah, look, it is really difficult if you've got a very short time frame to do an interview. For example, on AM, it's a rare thing these days that we would go over five minutes for an interview. If we decided to chase every rabbit down a hole, um, we wouldn't get to things that are discussed, you know, new policy announcements and decisions happen today. And quite frankly, that also, um, I, you just can't do it. You just can't. Look, if you, you can't, had half an hour on one point. person, you could. But I, I take his point. And you do. You do, yeah. do You do where you can, you know. You do where you can. And look, Alan's got And look, look, we pointed it out here, which I think um, might, might bring some satisfaction, but I, I absolutely take Alan's point there. But Sabra's right. You can't do it all the time. A uh, question from Sonia on energy. Uh, Just a thought, says Sonia, around climbing energy prices. Why not have a two-tier system where the customer pays a lowish price for a base amount of usage, and if it goes above that, the price goes up as well? And uh, Sonia says we could go a step further, refund money to customers who um, don't hit that base amount. Uh, Well, Sabra, what what do you reckon? A a tiered (laughs) energy payment structure? Yeah, look. You know, I guess we have tiered energy payments right now, peak and non-peak, mm. trying to encourage mm-hmm. people True. to use power when everyone else is not. Like I think all the weekends are now uh, are non-peak times because you've got big industrial users and businesses not operating then. So I guess technically you've got that. It's up to private companies though, right? They could do that if, if, they, if they want. Maybe some of them yeah, do. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it, it would be really interesting to have the debate now if we hadn't privatised all those assets, the elect, state electricity generators and the poles and wires. Mm. Would we do that now if we knew what was to come? I don't know. Mm. We do have that system because <laughs> of the yeah. peak and non-peak. And to, to Sonia's yeah. point, uh, y- using electricity, even lots of it, is not that bad 
if there's lots in the system. If you look at a, a you know, kind of a, a wave of how electricity runs around Australia, you can see a peak in the middle of the day because there's so much solar at the moment. And then, you know, do do your hardest, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Use as much electricity as you want because there's plenty in the system. Um, and maybe one day we'll get to some sort of uh, place where there's so much renewable energy we don't have to worry about using it. But, yes, there is a point about uh, conserving it at the moment. A final one here that I, I'm going to direct to you, Sabra. It's a question from Jeff. Does Tasmania need another power connection with the mainland? <laughs> and will the taxpayers have to pick up maintenance, repairs and downtime costs? This is, um, Sabra, all about the Marinus Link uh, project. Tell us about it. It is. It is all about the Marinus Link and, uh, as they would say down here, the connection to the North Island. <laughs> That very big North Island. That very big North Island. Look, yeah, it's an idea to put a second electricity connector between Tasmania and the mainland. Uh, the argument is, in short, to ensure that Tasmania is the battery to the nation, i.e. when uh, power is... Uh, short of supply or very expensive on the mainland, that they can use that cable to basically bring power back to the mainland from Tassie where it's held in uh, hydro or, you know, stored um, stored hydro power to keep the country going and to provide that kind of reliability. But here's the nub. Uh, it's going to cost a lot of money. We recently saw the federal government, Victoria and Tasmania, agreeing uh, that they would uh, chip in together and provide some of the funding for that. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation is going to provide the rest of the funding from that through uh, debt, you know, cheaper form mm. of financing for that. We've still yet to get a decision on the formal go-ahead for this. It's not going to happen until 2024, but that announcement sort of happened a couple of weeks ago in regards to the, the government's all agreeing to that and, you know, that was done with an eye on the Victorian state election happening quite shortly. That's the reason for it. So just to be clear on that, it's basically going to be owned by the three governments. Yeah. But with borrowed money using the Commonwealth's ability to um, yeah, provide Yeah, un underwrite it, basically. That's right. And for yeah. power to, to go from Tasmania to the mainland, essentially. Uh, and a lot of Tasmanians wonder where's the benefit for us in all of this. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? I just I'm, just, I'm keen to get an explanation on that, right, and the, the, the feeling in Tasmania on this, because surely... Yep. Um, you know, the, the, the wonderful hydro that's available there could be a real carrot to attract manufacturers from that big island to the north down to Tassie, uh, who are, you know, th th those manufacturers we were talking about earlier who are absolutely, you know, struggling with these gas prices, uh, perhaps relocate down to Tassie and um, tap into the cheap uh, Well, I'm sure that uh, the state government would like to see that happen here, but there's been no suggestion that that would happen under this plan. Uh, there is talk, though, with the Marinus link that there would be a better fibre optic connection provided to Tasmania, thereby boosting the online uh, capacity and capability and quality here. So, you know, that's also the carrot that's being dangled, as well as the prospect that, you know, Marinus would mean some jobs here. But, you know, again, it's questionable as to how many. Mm, James, <laughs> from the national perspective, though, this is going to be critical. Snowy Hydro 2.0 is going to be critical. The scale of investment that's needed to get to um, net zero is huge. Yeah. So to Jeff, does Tasmania need it? Maybe not. <laughs> does the country need it? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the, the basic problem is that we're going to have more and more renewable energy in the grid, wind and solar mainly, but uh, that goes up and down. Sometimes there's a lot of it, sometimes there's not as much. And so we need batteries like 
actually batteries in your house. We need batteries in communities. And then we need really, really monstrous batteries in the form of basically dams, which can be, as Sabra said, deployed when we need more power and pumped back up when power is cheap in the middle of the day, when the sun's you know blazing down. And as part of that, um, we need these hydro sites. And there's just not that many of them around the country. There's not that many suitable sites. And uh, on top of that, building, as anyone who's familiar with the Franklin Dam um, in Tasmania would know, mm. is a very, very sensitive environmental topic. And so even though some of these projects can look okay on paper, connecting them up, as we're finding with Snowy 2.0, building them, all these other things can take much, much longer than forecast. That's why the Marinus Link is seen as so important to the national energy market to, to kind of link it all up and make the power supply more stable. But uh, yeah, I understand the Tasmanian parochial <laughs> position on all this um, and uh, why there is some some reluctance. Well, uh, yeah, a long way to go with all of these things, um, but we're out of time for this week's uh, episode. Sabra Lane, James Glenday, great to talk to both of you. Thank you. Spears, Thank pleasure. you. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please send us your questions via the ABC Listen app or an email to backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.